about a human being coming and saying, you know what, I hope everyone is, is doing well. If the Lord can do it, I can do it. And I really have not been looking forward to this. And uh, it's such a, a pleasure to be here at least this show with you. Over on the other side, this is uh, heartbreak and misery and pain. But Lord, that's what you said. You said that I can write it down Okay, so um, accounts about water. This is this is for which I suppose I'm most well known, but uh, it's not at all my own uh, personal mission. Was to inspire the Lord to preach God's word, based my clothes on the message this morning, and give you another subject. But but clouds about water is the message that I'm on today. And clouds about water is a reference in the book of Jude in verse 12. Jude refers to false teachers in a number of different ways. He says they were pitifully and beloved, and he says these were viewed as altruists and only for themselves, and that is one of the hallmarks of a false teacher. A false teacher does not care about you, does not care about God, cares about only himself or herself. And then Jude says that they are clouds without water. And the picture there that Jude draws for us is that false teachers have the appearance of having been nourishment, but no sustenance ever falls from them. They lose the ground below them dry and parched. And Clouds Without Water, my seminar, deals specifically with what is called the Word of Faith Movement. The Word of Faith Movement is the proper term given to a movement that is more commonly known as the Naaman Plainer Gospel, the Melvin Grant Gospel, the Prosperity Gospel. Basically, the doctrine that says it's always God's will for a Christian to be wealthy, always God's will for a Christian to be physically healed and to be sick. In order to do good works, of course, what we end up doing is provided that we have enough faith, provided that you make the right positive confessions, uh, and provided that you sow enough seed into some minister's ministry. In other words, give him money, sow seed, and God will give you a harvest. If you ever hear a preacher tell you, sow a seed into my ministry so you can reap a harvest, run like the wind. You know you're dealing with a false teacher. And uh, so this movement is, let me also say this, uh, word faith movement, and you'll also hear me use the term New Apostolic Reformation, N-A-R. Um, not N-R-A, but N-A-R. So New Apostolic Reformation, that's a twin movement to word faith. It's everything that word faith is even worse. They have even more emphasis on modern-day miracles, signs and wonders, modern-day apostles. And uh, so with Word of Faith, you would have some of the more well-known names. Benny Hinn, Kenneth and Gloria Copeland, Creflo Dollar, Jesse Duplantis, Joyce Meyer, Joel Osteen, uh, Joseph Prince, Andrew Womack, some of those guys. With NAR, New Apostolic Reformation, you would have Bill Johnson, Bethel Church in Redding, California. We'll talk more about him uh, Lord willing, tomorrow morning. But Bill Johnson, Rick Joyner, uh, Todd White, Stacy Campbell, um, Heidi Baker. But what the, the only difference really is in their eschatology. NAR tends to be more post-millennial. Well, they, get, they go far beyond post-millennial. They get into what's called dominion theology. Uh, whereas Word of Faith, most of those guys would be, um, they would be premillennial. So, you know, their, their eschatology is fine, but it, it, that's really the only difference. Uh, and what you're seeing today is word faith and NAR blending together. You see classic word faith guys like Benny Hinn 
speaking at NAR churches and NAR conferences like Bethel, Bill Johnson, and, and they cross-pollinate. So they're basically just kind of melding in, into one uh, heretical theological stream. And so um, just a little bit of background information. I was first exposed to this movement as a teenager. I was born with cerebral palsy and uh, walk on crutches, but as a teenager, a neighbor of mine came up to me and he said, Justin, God's spoken to me and he's t told me that he's going to heal you as long as you have enough faith. And at age 16, this really struck a chord with me. I wanted to be healed. I wanted to be able to do the things that my friends were doing and you know, play football and all that kind of stuff. And uh, so I really latched on to it and he told me about a faith healer who was coming to my hometown at the time, Vicksburg, Mississippi. And uh, her name was Nora Lamb, L-A-M. And so I really thought that I had mustered up all the faith and was fully expecting to be healed. And so I went to see Nora Lamb. And obviously, uh, I was not healed. And so that was my first exposure to the Word of Faith movement, even though at the time I didn't even know it was a movement or had a name or anything like that. Um, now, some have made the charge against me that the reason that I now teach against the Word of Faith movement is that I'm bitter. And uh, I'm bitter. I, I, I'm, I'm actually glad to hear y'all laugh. So I, I hope, um, I, I'm glad that it's that obvious that, that I'm not. I, I mean, I'm not bitter about my cerebral palsy. I mean, I was born with it. I've never known anything different. And I understand now that I didn't understand thir whatever. I can't do the math, when I was 16. Uh, what I understand now is uh, I have a healthy understanding and theology of the sovereignty of God, God's providence, and, um, and suffering for the glory of Christ. Now, that is a, the, the word faith movement is completely bankrupt of any theology of suffering. They, they don't even have a category for that. So, um, but I know that if I have to live the rest of my life with cerebral palsy, that's fine. I've got all of eternity to live without it. So there's not a bitter bone in my body about not being healed. But, um, and I do what I do because I'm driven by the truth of God's word. And the gospel is being distorted and reproach is being brought upon the name of Christ by these wolves. So, and we're going to get more into the, to the, heresies of the word faith movement, Lord willing, tomorrow morning, and we're going to tie it all into Bethel and Hillsong music, and we're going to talk about all of that tomorrow morning, but I thought what we would do tonight is, is look at some of the practices of the charismatic movement and, uh, and tie it into the sufficiency of scripture that we'll also, Lord willing, talk about tomorrow morning as well. Every form of theological mischief that plagues the evangelical church, whatever that word means anymore, evangelical, but every form of theological mischief that plagues the evangelical church can be tied to an abandonment of the sufficiency of Scripture, Scripture sufficiency. Whether we're talking about word of faith, whether we're talking about the social justice movement, seeker-sensitive movement, it all comes down to an abandonment of the sufficiency of Scripture. Okay, so um, I want us to talk about tonight some of the some of the abuses, the bizarre practices that we see in the charismatic movement. Now there is a debate within Christianity today as to whether or not 
the apostolic gifts, the sign gifts, continue to be in operation. There is a position known as continuism, and if you are a continuist or a continuationist, that means that you believe that all of the spiritual gifts, including the apostolic gifts, the sign gifts, which would include tongues, interpretation of tongues, which is a separate gift. A lot of people don't realize that. Two different gifts. Tongues, interpretation of tongues, miracles, and physical healing, that those gifts continue to be operative in the church today. And if that is your view, then you are a charismatic. Okay, that's the charismatic position. Regardless of whether or not you speak in tongues, that is the charismatic position. Now, there is another position known as cessationism. And if you are a cessationist, that means that you believe not that all of the spiritual gifts have ceased, but only the apostolic gifts, the sign gifts, have ceased and are no longer functional in the church. Okay, I am a card-carrying cessationist. And a lot of people accuse me, oh, Justin doesn't believe in the Holy Spirit, doesn't believe in the, in the spiritual gifts. No, no, no. I do believe in the Holy Spirit and the spiritual gifts, the more normative gifts, if you will, the gifts of teaching, mercy, administration, hospitality, giving, exhortation. Those gifts are very much operative in the church today. I only believe that the apostolic gifts, the sign gifts, have ceased and are no longer operative in the church today. So uh, it's important to understand the proper definition of those two words. Okay, so what I thought I would do is I, I want to look at a few of these, a few of the areas that are kind of um, uh, endemic to the charismatic movement and, and discuss those. And I want to begin with the gift, talk about the gift of tongues. Actually, before I get there, I want to give you a little quiz, a little pop quiz. Okay, which theological group does the following? Which group do you think of when you see the following behaviors? Erratic jerking and shaking. They have uncontrollable laughter. They get slain in the spirit. They fall over backwards. They prophesy. They claim to have physical healings. And they speak in tongues. Which group do you automatically think of when you see these behaviors? Charismatic. Pentecostal, Hindus, Hindus, does that surprise you? There is a, a discipline within Hinduism known as Kundalini, and people who are in Kundalini exhibit the exact same behaviors that Charismatics do. You can take video clips of people in Hindu Kundalini, put them side by side, video clips of Charismatics, and you literally cannot tell the difference. They look exactly alike. And people in Hindu Kundalini speak in tongues in exactly the same way that Charismatics do. Exactly the same way. So what does that tell us? That tells us that just because someone is exhibiting one or more of those behaviors does not necessarily mean that that ability is coming from God. Hindus do it too. Pagans do it too. And they do it in the exact same way. Dear friends, no matter how real an experience may seem to us, and you hear charismatics say, well, I know tongues is real because I've experienced it. No matter how real your experience may seem, if that experience does not plumb with God's word, then you have exceeded biblical parameters. You've done what Paul said not to do in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. 
excuse me, Paul says, do not exceed what is written. When we exceed what is written, we are opening ourselves up to demonic influence and demonic suggestion. We cannot interpret the Bible by what we experience. We must interpret our experiences by the Bible. Okay? All right. So, uh, let's talk about tongues a little bit. Okay, I have a few uh, kind of bullet points dealing with tongues here. Number one, tongues are not unique to Christianity. We just talked about how Hindus speak in tongues. And indeed, a lot of pagan religions speak in tongues. There's a lot of Roman Catholics who speak in tongues. And that's a whole other seminar I could do on Roman Catholicism. But that uh, Roman Catholicism is, is not within biblical Christianity. Um, more, some Mormons speak in tongues. Some Muslims, if you can believe it, speak in tongues. So there's a lot of different pagan religions. A lot of Buddhists speak in tongues. So there's a lot of different pagan religions that, that speak in tongues. Not unique to Christianity. Tongues can be practiced in an ignorant, ungodly way. Tongues can be practiced in such a way that brings attention to the person speaking in tongues rather than glorifying Christ and edifying His church. And this is what was going on in the church of Corinth. When Paul came to Corinth, the city of Corinth, on his second missionary journey, he found, as you would imagine, a bunch of pagan idolaters, right? And uh, he preached the gospel to them, and a number of people were saved. And Paul spent a year and a half in Corinth discipling these new believers and, and starting a church there in Corinth. And uh, when Paul felt like they had reached a level of spiritual maturity sufficient enough to carry things on in his absence, Paul left Corinth and went to other destinations to preach the gospel. Well, Paul may have left a little bit too soon because some time passed and he got word back from Corinth via a letter that, that things had gone awry in the church of Corinth. There was a group of people within that church who had become very arrogant in their exercise of the spiritual gifts. And it had almost become a contest between them. Oh, you know, look at, I, I speak in tongues more than you do. I, I have the gift of healing more strongly than you do. Look at me, look how spiritual I am. And because of this arrogance, all manner of sin and immorality crept into the church. And it just about destroyed the church from the inside out. I mean, the church of Corinth was a mess. And they had all kinds of stuff going on in the church in Corinth. And uh, a lot of it came from this, this distortion of the spiritual gifts and arrogance and boasting in what they thought that they could do. If done in public, in corporate worship, an interpreter must always be present and must always interpret. Paul says that tongues must be done by two or at the most three, each in turn, Paul says, and let one interpret. And Paul says, if there is no one there to interpret, let him remain silent. So in other words, if there is no interpretation given, then it's not biblical. It's not of God, period. It is false that all believers should speak in tongues. A lot of charismatic churches teach that if you are saved, your salvation will be evidenced by you speaking in tongues. And if you don't speak in tongues, well, then you're probably not saved. But that's patently unbiblical. The Apostle Paul asks a series of rhetorical questions there in 1 Corinthians 12. He says, all are not apostles, are they? All do not teach, do they? All do not speak in tongues, do they? And clearly the implied answer to these rhetorical questions is 
No. No, they don't. So it's patently unbiblical to teach that if you're saved, if you're a Christian, you must speak in tongues. Now, we don't make that assertion for any of the other spiritual gifts, do we? Have you ever heard someone say, well, if you don't have the gift of administration, you're not a Christian. You know, if that's true, I'm not a Christian. You know, so we don't make that assertion for any of the other spiritual gifts. So why do we carve out an exception for the gift of tongues? doesn't make any sense. And also, tongues had a purpose. They were for a sign of judgment. And this is something that the vast, vast majority of people miss, and I myself missed for many years. There's only one place in the New Testament that gives us a reason, a purpose for the gift of tongues, and that's found in 1 Corinthians 14, 20 through 22. Paul says that tongues were for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. Now, what did Paul mean by that? Did Paul mean that when an unbeliever sees you speaking in tongues, that they will just be so impressed by that ability that they will just have to come to know Jesus as Savior and Lord? No, that, that's not at all what he meant. And we know that that's not what he meant because in 1 Corinthians 14, 20 through 22, Paul quotes Isaiah chapter 28. So now the question is, well, what's happening in Isaiah chapter 28? Judgment. One of the signs that God was bringing judgment upon Old Testament Israel is that one day the Jews would wake up and there would be a group of people in their midst speaking a foreign language, Assyrian, Babylonian, what have you. And when they saw a group of people in their midst speaking a foreign language, then they knew, uh-oh, God's about to bring the hammer down. God's bringing judgment. And that is what Paul quoted when he gave us a purpose for the gift of tongues. And that is exactly what we see in the book of Acts, day of Pentecost, birth of the church, which leads me to this next point, is that tongues were known languages, not unintelligible ecstatic gibberish. They were known languages. Uh, read Acts chapter 2. In fact, when those men began to speak in different languages, the languages are even listed there conveniently for us. There's like 15 or 16 different languages listed there. And when these men began to speak in different languages, languages that they did not themselves know, that was a sign that God's salvific gaze, if you will, was shifting away from Israel to the Gentiles. Israel was coming under God's judgment. Why? Because they rejected their Messiah. They crucified him. And so as a sign of judgment against Israel, God's salvific gaze shifted away from Israel to the Gentiles. And to this very day, Israel remains under the judgment of God. Okay? Now I'm not talking about a militaristic judgment or a political judgment. Not at all. And I'm not saying we should not support the nation of Israel. We absolutely should support the nation of Israel. Israel, by the way, is the only nation in the history of the planet that God has ever had a covenant relationship with. Okay? That's important to understand. You know, the, God does not have a covenant relationship with the United States of America. I appreciate the United States of America, but He does not have it. We're not in a covenant relationship with Him. Only Israel. Okay. So in, to this day, Israel, the vast majority of Jews, continue to reject Jesus as their Messiah. 
There's a few Jews who have received Christ, but the vast majority of them do not. Now one day, Romans chapter 11, I think is very clear. One day, God will return to Israel in a very dramatic way. But until that time comes, Israel is under the judgment of God. God has brought a partial hardening to the nation of Israel. All right, so just a few bullet points there dealing with tongues. Now, sometimes as we read the book of Acts or we read 1 Corinthians, a little bit difficult maybe for us to kind of visualize, like, what would this have looked like? So I want to give you a demonstration of how to speak in tongues. I want to show you what the gift of tongues would have looked like 2,000 years ago. Okay, so let's pretend that we are at Cornerstone Bible Church and we're in Jerusalem. And we're in the year A.D. 55. Okay, we're right in the heart of the apostolic era in Jerusalem. We've gathered for worship, Cornerstone Community Church or Bible Church, whatever I said. A.D. 55. Sunday morning, this is what the gift of tongues would have looked like. So I'm going to need a little help. Uh, Chris, just met you, brother. Would you mind standing up just for a second? So we've gathered for corporate worship, and God gives Brother Chris a message to communicate to us. But instead of communicating this message that he is getting, remember, this this is not something off the top of his head. This is something coming from God, a message from God, And Chris communicates that message to us in a language that he does not understand. Do you speak Farsi? No. So all of a sudden, Chris communicates this message to us from God, but he communicates it in fluent Farsi, even though he doesn't know Farsi. But there's a problem. None of us knows any Farsi either. Ah, but I just happen to have, you see, the gift of interpretation of tongues. And so I can translate what Chris said in Farsi back into English for our purposes here. And I can do that instantaneously even though, guess what? I don't speak Farsi either. And then Chris would sit down. Thank you, brother. And uh, Tim, can I get you to stand up? Remember, Paul said it must be done by two or at the most three, right? Each in turn. Okay? And so after Chris sits down, then God gives Tim... A message to communicate to us. But instead of communicating it in English, all of a sudden Tim starts speaking fluent Mandarin. Do you speak Mandarin? No. Okay. So Tim communicates this message in fluent Mandarin, even though he doesn't know Mandarin. But there's a problem. None of us knows Mandarin either, and so we have absolutely no idea what God is saying through Tim. Ah, but I just happen to have, you see the gift of interpretation of tongues. And so I can translate what Tim is saying in Mandarin back into English for our purposes here. And I can do that instantaneously, even though I don't know a word of Mandarin either. And then Tim would sit down. And so it would go. Now I ask you, have you ever seen anything like that done in a charismatic church before? Nope. And you know what? You never will. Guaranteed, 100% guaranteed, you will never see that done in a charismatic church. And yet, that is what the gift of tongues would have looked like 2,000 years ago. So we don't see anything like that, but what do we see today? Well, we, today we see something that looks a little bit more like 
this. Watch this from Sid Roth. And if you've never prayed in tongues, if you follow my instructions, the anointing is here to do the rest. I can't do it for you, but I can tell you how to pray in supernatural languages. So you start speaking like little baby words and say them as fast as you humanly can when I begin to pray. And when the supernatural will become natural as you take a step, Peter, of faith. Raise your hands to the Holy God and begin to pray in a language you've never been instructed. If you don't move your tongue and speak, no one else will do anything. Now, what does that kind of behavior do to glorify Christ or edify His church? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Who does that bring attention to? Themselves. Same thing that was going on in the church of Corinth is going on today. Literally every biblical parameter there is on the gift of tongues, they just broke. They just broke. That is not the gift of tongues. That's... that's Gibberish. It's garbage. Now, I want to give you a little bit of a history. Like, where did all this stuff come from? Well, this is a simplified version. But uh, the guy that was, you could call him Charles Fox Parham. He's kind of a very early uh, Pentecostal. He's the one that first connected the supposed Second blessing, you've heard of that term in charismatics, you know, second blessing of the baptism of the Holy Spirit with speaking in tongues. And uh, he started a school called Bethel School. And it's interesting that, now, let me say this too Charles Fox Parham and all of the early charismatic leaders, uh, Charles Fox Parham, John Alexander Dowie, John G. Lake, Amy Simple McPherson, Catherine Kuhlman, uh, Smith Wigglesworth, all these guys and gals were scoundrels. I mean, they were, they were immoral. They were sexually immoral. In fact, Charles Fox Parham was actually arrested for sodomy. Uh, they had immoral lives, and they were frauds and, and hucksters, and they, they, they defrauded people out of their life savings oftentimes. And they were known for fake miracles and false claims of healing and all kinds of stuff. People died under their um, ministries. I mean, many people died. But um, Charles Fox Parham is no different. But anyway, it is interesting, though, that when Charles Fox Parham first started out, in the early, early Pentecostals, early Charismatics, they, they actually had something of a right understanding of what the gift of tongues was. And they all initially thought, because they read it in the book of Acts, that speaking in tongues was speaking in known foreign languages. 
They actually had that part of it right. And so Charles Fox Parham started this school called Bethel Bible School, and he decided that what they were going to do is they were going to send some of their students out into far-flung lands without any language training at all, believing that once they got there, God would give them the gift of tongues, and then they would be able to communicate to the people in these foreign lands. Charles Fox Parham says this, recorded in the Topeka State Journal. He says, The Lord will give us the power of speech to talk to the people of the various nations without having to study them in schools. There is no doubt that at this time, once they get to these countries, they will have conferred on them the gift of tongues if they are worthy, believing they will thus be made able to talk to the people whom they choose to work among in their own language. The students of Bethel College do not need to study in the old way to learn the languages. And so they sent about 18 of their students out to China, some to China, some to Japan, some to India, believing that once they got there, they would be able to communicate to those people in their foreign, I mean, in their native tongues. But Robert M. Anderson, writing a book on the history of the Pentecostal movement, he says this, um, S.C. Todd of the Bible Missionary Society investigated 18 of these Pentecostals who went to Japan, China, and India, expecting to preach to the natives in those countries in their own tongue, and found by their own admission in no single instance have they been able to do so. As these and other missionaries returned in disappointment and failure, Pentecostals were compelled to rethink their original view of speaking in tongues. So it's very interesting that the early Pentecostals, they rightly, rightly believed that the gift of tongues was speaking in a foreign language. And the, when they changed their theology to say, oh, well, no, okay, we, we got that wrong. It's not speaking in foreign languages, known languages. No, it's actually speaking in, in unintelligible ecstatic gibberish. The reason they had to change their paradigm on tongues is because they sent these folks out to these foreign lands and they, they got there and they couldn't talk to anybody. They didn't understand any of those folks and the folks there didn't understand them. And they came back in complete failure. There was one lady though, one student from Bethel College named Agnes Osmond. And the claim was that when she received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that she was able to speak in Chinese even though she didn't know Chinese. There was one lady that claimed to be able to, to have that ability, or at least it was reported to her that, of her that she had that ability. The claim was, was that for three days she couldn't even speak English. She could only speak Chinese. Well, that report is coming from Charles Fox Parham. It's not reported by anyone else, not even reported by Agnes Osmond herself. But Agnes Osmond did claim to be able to write in Chinese. Okay. All of a sudden, God gave her the ability to write in Chinese. And it's fascinating because we actually have a picture of some of her writing in Chinese. <laughs> now, you don't have to be Chinese. You don't have to even know Chinese to know that that is not Chinese. That's chicken scratch. That's the best they could come up with. So um, not, not too impressive. Not too impressive. 
Jack Hayford is a well-known charismatic pastor in California, and he admits, he said, sadly, the idea of xenoglossolalic tongues, foreign languages, would later prove an embarrassing failure as Pentecostal workers went off to the mission fields with their gift of tongues and found their hearers did not understand them. And so it was only after that failure that Pentecostals and Charismatics said, oh, oh, wait, 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 we, we got this wrong. Speaking in tongues, tongues is actually speaking in unintelligible ecstatic gibberish. No, that's not the biblical gift of tongues at all. Never was. Now, if you were to ask a Charismatic today, why do you speak in tongues? You will not hear them say, oh, I'm so glad you asked. You see, I speak in tongues as a sign of God's judgment against unbelieving Israel. You won't hear that. What will you hear? You'll probably hear something like this. The reason the devil, and that's who it is, does not want you to speak in supernatural languages is because this is the doorway into all of the supernatural. Listen to this. No satanic resistance. Why do I say that? The devil doesn't understand what you're saying. He can't resist you. You got it? So when you speak in tongues, you'll hear a lot of charismatics say this. Well, when you speak in tongues, you're praying in the tongues of angels and Satan can't understand what you're saying. So it's like, you know, it's like we're, we're, we're talking in code. And when you pray in tongues, Satan can't understand that. So you're slipping one in under old Lucifer there because when you're praying in tongues, you're praying in the tongues of angels and Satan can't understand the tongues of angels. Does that make any sense? No. What is Satan? He's an angel. He's a fallen angel, but he's an angel. So if you want to pray in some language that Satan does not understand, then the tongues of angels would be the last language I would recommend you <laughs> praying in. <laughs> That's what he is. So it just makes absolutely no sense. So, so where do they get this tongues of angels thing? Well, they get it from 1 Corinthians 13 verse 1. Paul says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become as a sounding brass or a tinkling, clanging cymbal. That's where they get it. The, the one reference right there. But that is not what Paul was talking about. Paul was using hyperbole. He's exaggerating to make a point. How do we know that he's exaggerating to make a point? We know he's exaggerating to make a point by looking at the next couple of verses. Paul says... If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, did Paul know all mysteries? No. Did he have all knowledge? No. And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, had Paul ever rearranged the topography of Israel? No. But do not have love? I am nothing. And if I give all of my possessions to feed the poor, had Paul done this? No. And if I surrender my body to be burned, had Paul surrendered his body to be burned? Obviously not. But do not have love, it profits me nothing. What Paul was doing was giving the Corinthians a rebuke, a stinging rebuke. Because the Corinthians had become very arrogant in their exercise of the spiritual gifts and what they thought they could do and how flashy and showy they were. And they wore that as a, as a badge of 
spiritual acumen. I have arrived. And Paul was writing to them, and this was a rebuke. Paul was saying, look, even if I knew all mysteries, even if I had all knowledge, even if I could move mountains, even if I could speak with the tongues of angels, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. The Corinthians had no love. They had self-love, self-interest. They did not have love for their brethren. They did not have love for God. They were arrogant, and this was a rebuke to them. Paul was rebuking the Corinthians for the exact same thing that charismatics do today. Dear friends, it does not matter what we know. It does not matter what we think we can do. If what we know and what we do is not built upon a foundation of love, and I'm not talking about a kumbaya, touchy-feely kind of love, a love that is built upon sound doctrine. If, it's, if what we th think we know and do is not built upon that, it profits us nothing. We have become as a sounding gong or a clanging cymbal. That reference, by the way, a sounding gong, sounding brass, or a tinkling, clanging cymbal, that's a very intentional reference by Paul because before the Corinthians became Christians in their pagan worship, as part of their pagan worship to pagan deities, they would whip themselves up into the heightened, frenzied, emotional states. And part of the worship in their pagan idolatry in these heightened, frenzied states would be to speak in unintelligible, ecstatic gibberish. Same thing the Corinthians do. And guess what they would use to help whip themselves up into these frenzied, ecstatic states in which they spoke unintelligible gibberish. They would use sounding brass, that's right, and tinkling, clanging cymbals. That was a very direct reference by the Apostle Paul. When the Corinthians read that, that would have been a ouch moment because they would have known exactly what he was talking about. Very interesting. Okay. Now, um, I want us to... There's a very important question regarding the cessationist continuous position. And, and let me say that I do not believe that if someone is a continuist or a charismatic, I don't believe that that position in and of itself constitutes gospel-denying heresy. Okay? There are genuine Christians that come down on different sides of this issue and they're real believers, okay? So it's not, we're not talking, if someone's a charismatic, that that automatically means that they're not saved. So it's not a salvific issue. But let me say this, where you come down on that issue is a very, very, very important issue because it has profound impact on how you view the sufficiency of Scripture. Okay, and the fact of the matter is this, is that the mainstream of the charismatic movement, um, sometimes people accuse me, oh, Justin, you're just talking about the fringe element of the charismatic movement. You know, Benny Hinn, he's a fringe element. You know, Kenneth Copeland, he's fringe. That, that's the fringe element of the charismatic movement. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. No, the fringe of the charismatic movement would be men like John Piper, Wayne Grudem, 
Sam Storms. These are men who are right on the gospel, but they are charismatic. Okay. That's the fringe of the charismatic movement. That's a tiny minority. The mainstream of the charismatic movement is Benny Hinn and Kenneth Copeland and Joyce Meyer and Joel Osteen and Joseph Prince and Andrew Womack, Word of Faith. Okay. So all Word of Faith are charismatic, but to be fair, not all charismatics are Word of Faith. The vast majority of them are, but a small number are not. So I, I do want to be fair in that. So dealing with the charismatic position, are there apostles today? Well, to be an apostle, a man had to meet three requirements. And it had to be a man, by the way. Okay. So assuming you fell into that half of the population, uh, to be an apostle, guys, you had to meet three requirements. Number one, you had to be a first person eyewitness of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. You had to see Jesus raised from the dead with your own two eyes. Okay. Number two, you had to be directly appointed by Christ to be an apostle. You didn't, you didn't run a campaign. Okay? You didn't wake up one morning and decide you wanted to be an apostle, so you run down to the local print shop and you have a bunch of campaign signs printed up, vote for me, your next apostle. You had to be directly appointed by Christ to be an apostle. And number three, did we lose this? We did lose the screen, didn't we? Um, number three... You had to have the ability to perform the signs and wonders of an apostle. To heal the sick, cast out demons, and on occasion, raise the dead. And friends, to be an apostle, you had to meet all three of these requirements. And there is not a person alive anywhere on the planet today who meets even one of those requirements, much less all three of them. Now hang on just a second. We'll see if we can... Okay. All right. Thank you, brother. Okay. And so to be an apostle, you had to meet all three of those requirements. And there is not a person alive anywhere on the planet today who meets even one of those requirements, much less all three of them. So there are no more apostles today, period. Now, all these people running around, you know, calling themselves apostle this and apostle that. No, you're not. You're not an apostle. All of the apostles have been dead now for almost 2,000 years. And uh, here's another question that I would have for charismatics. 
if all of the apostolic gifts continue to be in operation today, then that means that the gift of healing is in operation today. Show me the person with the gift of healing. Where's that guy? Where's the person who can go up to someone who is sick and at will, with 100% success, instantly, verifiably heal someone who is sick? And I'm not talking about some psychosomatic healing like what you see with Benny Hinn and these others. I'm not talking about someone who says, oh yeah, I, I've got bursitis in, in my right shoulder and I, you know, you, you laid hands on, yeah, I believe that shoulder feels better today. No, I'm talking about a real healing. I'm talking about an amputee growing a new limb. I'm talking about someone who was born blind with instant 20-20 vision. I'm talking about someone who looks like me instantly running like a deer. Where's that guy? Where's the fellow who has that gift? You know what, dear friends? I have been, by God's grace, I have been in churches all around the world. I've been in 27 or 28 different countries preaching. Some countries multiple times. And you know what I find so fascinating? It does not matter where in the world I go. Anytime I am in a doctrinally sound church, a true biblical church, you know what I find? I find people with a gift of teaching. I find people with a gift of mercy. I find people with a gift of hospitality. I find people with a gift of administration, with a gift of giving, with a gift of exhortation. I find these gifts every single church I go into. Where's the guy with the gift of healing? Where's that fellow? If all of the spiritual gifts are still operative today and the Holy Spirit of God distributes the spiritual gifts among the body as He wills to do, and He does, we know that from 1 Corinthians 12, then you would expect that if all those gifts are still operational, then you would expect that every church would have at least one of them. You show me anybody on the planet who has the gift of healing, I will eat my crutch. That person does not exist. Does not exist. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me. I don't want you to think, oh, Justin doesn't believe that God heals people today. No, I do. I do believe that God not only can, but on occasion does physically heal people today, but only when it is His sovereign will to do so. But that's a very different thing than saying that someone actually possesses the gift of healing. Okay? Two totally different things. You know, when God heals someone, He just does it because it pleases Him to do so. That's not the same thing as saying someone actually possesses the gift of healing. Okay? Apples and oranges. Can't compare those two. Two totally different things. But there are people today who claim to be able to have that gift. And um, one of them is Todd White. You've probably seen Todd White. Todd White is... Uh, yeah, he's he's got the the long dreadlocks and and looks like the looks like the predator, you know, which which he is a predator, just a spiritual predator. But what Todd White is known for is you can look him up on YouTube. I mean, he's got all kinds of these videos on YouTube. But he goes out on the street at random, and he's got his camera guy along with him, and he goes up to people at random. 
and claims to heal them of various maladies. The most common malady that he heals people of is that one leg is apparently just about that much shorter than the other one. So there, you know, forget about COVID being the the pandemic. The real pandemic is people walking around with one leg about that much shorter than the other one because apparently every person has this malady. And so he'll have them sit down in a chair or on a, you know, curb or something like that. And he'll get in front of them, kneel down, and he'll take one foot in each hand and he'll put the, the legs together. And the, so the camera guy's above his shoulder looking down. And you can see that, sure enough, one leg is just about that much shorter than the other one. And he commands the leg to grow. He commands the short leg to grow. And sure enough, 100% of the time, the leg grows. It's amazing. Let's watch him do it. Here it is. Here's Todd White in action, lengthening people's legs. You're one leg shorter than the other one? That throws you back up. Okay, so regardless of, like, well, yeah, no matter what. So what I'll do, regardless of what you believe, I'm going to pray for you, and Jesus is going to grow your leg out and heal your back. You don't even have to believe, dude. So you get into the, the weirdest place of belief that you want. You can unbelieve as much as you want. Okay, I want to pause it right there for a second. It's very interesting. He says you can get in the weirdest place of belief, unbelief you want. doesn't matter what you believe. The, the reason he can say that with such confidence that it does not matter that what he believes or what that guy believes is because he knows full well that what he's about to do is a trick. And so he is right. It doesn't matter what that guy believes because what he's about to do is a trick. But anyway, so watch. And God's going to grow your leg out and heal your back. I promise, man, you grow right now. Jesus' name. Look at it. See it? Whoa. Look at that. Do you guys see that right there? Yes. It's longer now than the other one. <laughs> so, Father, I thank you for a brand new back, God. I thank you that it's not about religion. It's about Jesus. Wow. Well, the leg grew, didn't it? Just right before our very eyes. Amazing. Now, did you, did you catch what the, the other fellow in the background, he said, he said, look, now it's longer than the other one. <laughs> so I, I, guess, I guess God just overshot it a little bit. <laughs> so now he's going to have to go and command the leg that used to be the long leg that's now the short leg. He's going to have to command it to grow to match the other leg. And, you know, I mean, if, if, pretty soon this guy's going to be 12 feet tall. So. But, hey, let's be fair. Before, after. How do you argue with that? Well, this is how he does it. Watch. Now we're going to see Todd White's clip sped up quite a bit and looped back and forth. Now this is where we can see what's really going on here. The leg on our right is supposed to be the short leg, and this is the leg which should be miraculously growing, but it's not. Look at the leg on our left. That's where all the action is. That's what's actually being manipulated. You can see that Todd is actually pivoting or shifting the foot of the so-called long leg so that the heels match. Now, he's doing this very slowly over time, but it's painfully obvious when you speed up the clip. You see, the leg isn't growing at all. He's just manipulating the shoe and manipulating the angle 
of the foot. And there's a couple of ways they do. They do that. Sometimes they'll they'll just alter the the angle of both legs so that you know, like they kind of you know do that's exaggerated. But but uh, charlatans have been doing this trick. It's a parlor trick that they've been doing for decades. It's just that Todd White has made it popular with the advent of YouTube. He's a fraud. He knows full well what he's doing. He is a bald-faced liar. He is a fraud. About a year ago, summer last year, July of last year, Todd White made big news in the evangelical world because Todd White repented. Remember hearing about this? Todd White repented? Well, his so-called repentance lasted all of a week because he was right back doing the same old stuff, teaching the same old stuff. Benny Hinn made big news about two years ago when Benny Hinn repented for about the fourth or fifth time. Benny Hinn repented and he said, I'm no longer going to preach the prosperity gospel. You know, and he said, God, is, God has gotten a hold of me and I'm, I'm no longer going to do it. If I, and if I ever hear someone say that again, that God, give me money and God will bless you. If he said, if I ever hear that again, I'm going to throw up. Well, he didn't have to wait very long to hear it again because it started coming out of his own mouth again within literally within weeks of his so-called repentance. Benny Hinn is not repentant. Todd White is not repentant. Let me tell you what repentance would look like. If Benny Hinn truly repented and Todd White truly repented, here's what it would look like. They would come out and they would say, I have been lying to you. I have been lying to you for years, in Benny Hinn's case, for decades. I've been lying to you all the times that I have claimed that God has spoken to me. He has not spoken to me. All the people that I have claimed to be healed up on my stage at my miracle crusades, they weren't healed, and I know they weren't healed. I was lying to you. And I recognize that I'm not qualified to be behind the pulpit. And so I'm going to shut my ministry down. I'm going to liquidate everything that the ministry has, every penny that the ministry has. I'm going to give it to doctrinally sound ministries and doctrinally sound churches. And I'm going to shut my ministry down and I'm going to sit in the pew and I'm going to learn. Then and only then would real repentance be evident. That is what repentance would look like in their lives. That's what repentance would look like. Genuine repentance is a lot more than just saying, oops. Real repentance bears real fruit. They have been publicly sinning, publicly lying to people, publicly bringing untold reproach on the name of Christ. And so if they are truly repentant, it will be evident by them shutting their ministries down. Anything short of that is not repentance. Okay. I want to talk a little bit about spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare. Watch this from Creflo Dollars. Pretty good little snapshot of, of how spiritual warfare is viewed in the charismatic movement and even in a lot of non-charismatic churches, sadly. But watch this from Creflo Dollar. But I know of God who has given us the power, and if we 
will release our authority in faith, we can see things change today. It don't take another two or three months. It takes you getting mad at the devil, mad at the circumstance, mad at the sickness, mad at the lack, and say, I will not take this no more. You don't say no, dear Mr. Devil. You go and you say, Devil, in the name of Jesus, I done put up with you the last 10 years. Now, my Bible tells me that life is not supposed to be like that. And according to this scripture, and according to that scripture, and over here in this book, and over here in that book, this is how my life is supposed to be. Therefore, in the name of Jesus, I take my authority that I already have, and I command this to be in my life. And I rebuke you, I find you, I, I, I arrest you, I lock you up, I put you in chain, you get out of my life. Wow, that's impressive. I arrest you, I bind you, I lock you up, I put you in chains. You know, so if, if that, that's what they say spiritual warfare is about. If, if you really want to do spiritual warfare, then you've got you've to rebuke Satan, you've got to bind Satan... Actually, if you think about it, it's probably a pretty good idea if you bind him first before you rebuke him because you, you wouldn't want to rebuke an unbound Satan. So, so bind him first and, and then rebuke him. Have you ever wondered all these people going around binding Satan? Someone sure keeps letting him back out. You know, who's the fellow who keeps letting him out? Maybe you ought to go find him and bind him first and, you know, and then go bind Satan. You know... You see, you just, a little common sense, you know, clears so much of this stuff up, you know. Uh, yeah, so that, that's, uh, that's not what spiritual warfare is about. And they say, oh, you got to, you know, if you're an alcoholic, it's because you've got the demon of alcohol that has been passed down through your bloodline. You're, you're an alcoholic, you're a drunk because your great, great, great grandfather was an alcoholic and the demon of alcohol has been passed down through your bloodline. So you've got to break these generational curses. That's garbage. You know what that is when you hear stuff like, oh, you've got to break generational curses. You know, the reason you're the way you are is because you've got the generational curse. You know what that is? That is an excuse. That is a way of absolving people of doing the one thing that they are commanded to do from Scripture and that is to repent. And all these 12-step deals out there, you know, celebrate recovery and all this kind of stuff, 12 steps to blah, blah, blah. It's far too complicated. That's, that's too many steps. There's only one step, and the step is to repent. That's your step, okay? There's no such thing as the demon of alcohol. There's no such thing as the demon of sexual immorality or anything like that. If you're in sin, your responsibility is to repent. That's, that's what you do. But I want us to look in the book of Jude. Jude is a fascinating passage. In the book of Jude, beginning in verse 8, and really the whole letter of Jude is dealing with false teachers, but Jude begins, or well, it doesn't begin, but in verse 8 he says, Yet in the same way these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. But Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against Satan a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these men revile the things which they do not understand and the things which they know by instinct like unreasoning, unreasoning animals... 
By these things they are destroyed. It's a very curious text. So Satan and Michael the archangel had this dispute apparently over the body of Moses. We don't know exactly what that looked like. But it's very interesting that Michael the archangel, when he had this dispute with Satan over the body of Moses, Michael the archangel did not dare pronounce against him a railing accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Dear friends, think about that. If Michael the archangel would not rebuke Satan, it's probably a pretty good idea you and I not try to do it. We should never, ever, ever, under any circumstances, ever talk to Satan. Okay? There should never be an opportunity in your life, ever, when you talk to Satan. Do not ever talk to Satan. That's not what spiritual warfare is about. Do you know what real spiritual warfare is about? Real spiritual warfare is a battle for truth. It's a battle for, it's a battle for men's minds. It's not this Frank Peretti stuff with swashbuckling angels and demons. That, that's, that's what marks a false teacher, actually. Reviling angelic majesties, as Jude said. That's what a false teacher does. We don't have that ability. You remember the movie War Room? Did you see them? Anybody see the movie War Room? Yeah, I went to I went to see it as well. I did not go to see it for edification. I went to see it for just for research. But there's that there's that climatic scene in War Room, and the the main character um, Priscilla Shire is who played her. Was it Elizabeth? I can't remember. But uh, you know her. Her life was a mess, right? Her husband was a jerk. You know, he's running around on her and he wasn't paying attention to their daughter. Her husband was a jerk. And I mean, her life is just, it was just a mess. And she finally had enough of it, right? And there's that climatic scene. She's in her kitchen and she starts, she starts talking to Satan and she starts saying, Satan, you are not welcome to my house anymore. I'm taking my house back. And, and she storms out the house and just a real dramatic scene there where she starts talking to Satan, rebuking Satan. That's what false teachers do. There should never, ever, ever, under any circumstances, ever be an opportunity, an occasion in which you talk to Satan. And if you come across someone that you suspect might be demon-possessed, that does happen today. I mean, there, there is such a thing as that. That does happen. And if you come across someone who you suspect is influenced by demons by, to one degree or another, maybe even demon-possessed, don't try to cast the devil out of that person. There's two things you can do. You can pray for that person. We don't have the ability or the authority to cast out demons. But guess what? We do have access to the one who actually does have that authority, God. And so we can pray for that person and you can share the gospel with that person. And you know what? If God saves that person through the communication of the gospel, guess what's going to leave? Devil's going to leave. Demon, whatever, is going to leave. So, real spiritual warfare is not a battle for terror. We're not trying to take back territory from demons. In fact, I want to commend to you a book 
The title of it is Truth or Territory, A Biblical Approach to Spiritual Warfare. It's written by a man named Jim Osmond. He's a pastor in northern Idaho, Sandpoint, Idaho. He was my pastor up until a few years ago when we, when we moved to Montana. Great, great guy. One of the best preachers I've ever heard. Uh, and he's written this book, Truth or Territory, Biblical Approach to Spiritual Warfare. He's got some other books he's written as well. And his website's jimosmond.com. So excellent, excellent resources. So if you want to do a deep dive on spiritual warfare, that, that's, uh, that's it. Real spiritual warfare is a battle for truth. It's a battle for men's minds. Spiritual warfare happens when your pastor gets up on Sunday morning and preaches God's word. That's spiritual warfare. When you share the gospel with someone, that's spiritual warfare. It's not the Frank Peretti stuff. Okay. All right. Well, um, there's much more I could go into, but we've um, gone for about an hour. Do y'all, let's do a little bit of Q&A. Would you like to do Q&A? And, and as Carrie is coming, let me say real quickly, I do, um, while I'm thinking about it, have some resources available for you. The Clouds Without Water seminar I have on a DVD set, and uh, there's about eight, seven to eight hours of teaching in this, so uh, I'm just giving you a, an overview of Clouds Without Water, but if you want everything, it's in this DVD set. And I've written a book entitled, Do Not Hinder Them, A Biblical Examination of Childhood Conversion, How to Tell When Conversion Has Taken Place in the Life of Your Child. How to... How do I know when it's wise to baptize my child? You know, and basically in this book, I, I, I make the biblical case that just because a child has made intellectual assent to some basic gospel facts at age six, seven, eight, nine years of age, that does not mean that that child is ready for baptism. Okay? How to tell when conversion has really taken place in the life of your child and it's wise to baptize them. Uh, that book is available for you. And these, uh, this is... A little flash, a flash drive with a little magnetic cap, and it's loaded with a lot of my teaching, a lot of series I've done. I've got a series on the attributes of God, series on um, cessationism. I've got a, a series on experiencing God by Henry Blackaby. I've got a series entitled "Witnessing to the Witnesses," and, and what that is, it's about a two and a half hour witnessing encounter I had with two Jehovah's Witnesses. And I just decided to record it as I sat down at a table and witnessed to them. It's really fascinating because you hear all of their arguments, and then you'll hear me answer from Scripture. And it's, it's quite fascinating. But I, all of the, there's about 150 individual messages on here, so a, a lot of other stuff. So those are available for you. And um, my newsletter is out there. That's free. Grab you one of those. And if you would like... To sign up for an e-newsletter that I send out every month, there's a sign-up sheet there, and you can put your John Hancock. So that's that's available for you. Okay, Pastor Garrett. Okay, guys, who's who has a question for me or for Justin? Excuse me. Let's start right there. Let's try to speak into the mic so that people online can hear us. Okay. So. Uh, my question is um, about Apostle Paul. Was he an apostle? Yeah, yes. Uh, he, he, he did not meet the first two criteria. So how, how can he be an apostle? Okay, so great. Do I need to repeat the question or do you think it was loud enough? No, it's fine. Okay, so um, was Paul a real, because 
you say he didn't meet the first two requirements. He actually, he actually did, though. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, referring to Jesus, he appeared to me also. And so Jesus did appear to him on the road of Damascus. The second, so he, meets, he met that requirement. The second one, uh, he had to be directly appointed by Christ to be an apostle, and, and I would say that came as well with his conversion on the Damascus road. And, and Paul refers to himself as an apostle repeatedly. In many of the letters he wrote, he actually opens him, I, Paul, an apostle of Christ. Um, so he refers to himself as an apostle in many different places. So yes, he was, he was an apostle. Okay. I would say the same but, thing. He repeat, repeatedly opens his letters by saying, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Yes. Here is that that people nowadays can claim the same thing. So Apostle was uh, Paul was not with Jesus. Didn't walk with with Jesus. I agree with, with what you say, but you can understand the confusion. Yeah, he he didn't walk with Jesus in the sense that the disciples did. Yeah. Right, that is correct. But but he did. Jesus did appear to him a post post resurrection in post-ascension appearance to Paul on the Damascus Road, and, uh, and he was appointed to, to be an apostle. So, so he was an unusual apostle. Um, in fact, Paul refers to himself as one untimely born, but, but he, was, he was an apostle. Just a, a, different, a bit different from the other ones, but he was. Okay, another question. Right there. How do you handle the verse that talks about the sins of the father to the third and fourth generation? Yeah, that, that's uh, the address of that escapes me right now. Carrie, do you remember? It's in, it's in the, the law, right? Yeah. Yeah. So. I want to say, say Exodus, but I may not be right on that. Yeah, I'm not sure either. But um, actually, Jim Osmond deals with that, with that verse quite in depth in his book. Um, and it's... Uh, Basically, the, the long and short of, is, of it is is that consequent sinful behavior, acts of sin, can have consequences that impact future generations. You know, if if a man is unfaithful to his wife and ruins his marriage, his sin is not imputed to his children, but the consequences of it, the effects of it, do have effects, and those effects may be passed down, but the guilt itself uh, stays with the the one who commits it. But it, the there are ripple effects. There are consequences. But, but the guilt of it itself is relegated to the one who commits it. So Barnabas was called an apostle in Acts 13. So is he different than the rest of the apostles? Um, does he fit that category? Uh, just shed some more light on that for yeah. us. Yeah, great question, Tim. So let me pull up another slide that for time's sake I skipped over, but, but since you asked the question, we'll, we'll return to it. Okay, so, all right. What is an apostle? The, the Greek word apostle, apostolos, literally means one who is sent. That's all the word means. But uh, there are two different kinds of apostles. There are apostles of Christ, and when we refer to the apostles of Christ, that refers to the office of being an apostle. 
okay, as, as was Paul, Peter, John. So uh, the office. Now, the same word apostolos is, is used in a more general sense. And in this we refer to apostles of the church. Just a general sense in which people are sent out from a local church who did not have that office of being an apostle. Um, so an evangelist, a missionary, we could refer to as an apostle little a, and that's how we denote the difference in English. Big A apostle, apostle of Christ, little a apostle, an apostle of the church, just someone who is sent out from a local body to do missionary work or evangelism. And so in a, I hope nobody takes this out of context and edits a video, in a very general sense, okay, in a very general sense, as an evangelist, I am an apostolos of my home church back in Montana. Okay, I'm just in a, in, a, in a very general sense an apostle of the church in that I'm sent out from a local body of believers who know me, they know what I'm doing, they approve it, and so I go out and do my ministry. So I am not an apostle of Christ. I do not hold that office. Nobody holds that office. And it's interesting. You see this in a couple other terms as well. For example, elder, presbyteros, or presbyteroi in the plural. Elder could refer simply to an older man, or it could refer to the office of being an elder. So you have to look at the context in which it's used. And the word deacon, uh, we just lost again. Uh, Deacon, diakonos, is, is used the same way. Deacon could, in a very general sense, refer to a servant, just one who serves. Okay, Or it could refer to the office of being a deacon in which you have to meet the biblical qualifications. So. Very good. Context is king. Yes. Hey, brother. Uh, since you're talking Greek, I had a question on uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 31. I know this is a discussion even within cessationism, but that verb, but earnestly seek the higher gifts, could be an imperative or an indicative. Do you yes. take it as an indicative to say... But you are seeking the higher gifts. Yes. And let me show you still a better way, which is chapter 13, love. Yep. You would take it. Okay. That's the way I take it. Okay. Yep. Thank uh-huh. you. Yeah. Great. Great question. You answered your own question. But yeah. That's right. Um, so as someone who has come from the New Apostolic Reformation thing, um, how do you kind of balance um, falling into legalism or when people like if you're sharing these sorts of things and being like whoa look at what I just learned them saying ah you're just being legalist you know just live and let live yada 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 you know what I mean I think so so how do you how do you so how do you like uh, teach these things to others without being accused of being a legalist or coming across as kind legalistic? Like is that what you mean? a response when people are like, oh, this is just legalism. Like yeah. you're just, you know, you're not spirit-filled. You're being a legalist. And then you're like, okay, well, it feels like I just know truth, but right. go off. Right. <laughs> yeah, well, you're exactly right. That is it. And, and uh, people who... <laughs> People who play the uh, legalist card or even the Pharisaical, Pharisaical card, the Pharisee card, they don't understand what a Pharisee is. They don't understand what legalism really is. They use that word, but they, they kind of uh, take the Inigo Montoya approach. You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. 
So you, you keep saying legalism. You know, I don't I don't I think it means what you think it means. Legalism is is adding things to the gospel itself that are not intrinsically part of the gospel. In other words, like in order to be a Christian, you've got to, for example, the Hebrew Roots Movement. To be a real Christian, you've got to observe the feasts and the festivals, and you can't eat shellfish, and you can't eat catfish because they don't have scales. And, you know, and, and, and if, if you do all that stuff, then that means you're not really a Christian. That would be legalism. You know, you've got to have your hair cut a certain way, and you, that's legalism. So, but you're exactly right. It's just that in teaching these things, we, we just know the truth. We're just teaching the truth, and so that's not legalism. So, very good. We're um, in the book Revelation here. Carrie's been teaching for quite often on that, and eschatology is very important. What's your view on Jonathan Kahn? Oh, what do I think of Jonathan Kahn? Not much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Jonathan Kahn is a book who has written. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. Jonathan Kahn is a man who has written a book entitled The Harbinger. And I think he's also had a second edition or another, like The Harbinger 2 or something like that. Uh, Jonathan Cotton is, is everything that we're talking about. He's Word of Faith. Um, his, his Harbinger book was a, I mean, it was a hermeneutical train wreck. Um, he thinks that 9-11 was some sign from God that we're heading into the end days and last times and all that. And, uh, it, it's not, yeah. And 9-11 had nothing to do with that. So Jonathan Kahn is a con. <laughs> yeah. Any other questions? Couple back there. Anything closer? <laughs> okay, where were those hands? There's one right back here. Yeah, um, how the prayer tongue and then the prophetic tongue. I get that a lot from charismatics. What would your biblical response be to that? The difference, like, oh, that's prophetic tongue, but this is prayer tongue between me and God. Yeah. They separate yeah. it. And they have some Bible verses, but I just, uh, I put them in the same category. Yeah. So how would you do that? So there, there is no such thing as a prayer tongue. Uh, charismatics say that a lot. Uh, you've heard charismatics Maybe some charismatics say, and I've heard this. And, and they're well-meaning. A lot of them are well-meaning, but they're, they're misguided. But they'll say, well, when I pray in tongues, I don't, I don't do it in church. It's just something between me and the Lord. It's something I do in my private prayer time. Maybe some of you have heard people say this, you know, just something, my own private devotion, I'll pray in tongues. Here's the problem with that. Two problems with that. The first one is... For what purpose does the Holy Spirit give spiritual gifts? Broadly speaking, what are they for? Edification of the church, right? The building up of the body. They are not for our own private use. Okay? They're not for our own private use. If you have the gift of mercy, do you go into your private prayer closet and just show yourself mercy? You know? No. You know, we laugh at that, right? It's comical. So, again, why do we carve out an exception for the gift of tongues? It doesn't make any sense. Spiritual gifts are not for our own private use. They're for the edification of the body. Um, and the other thing with that is that 
there is no example anywhere in Scripture of anyone, including Jesus himself, of praying in anything other than a known human language. Not even Jesus prayed in ecstatic gibberish. So there's literally no example anywhere in Scripture of anyone praying in anything other than a known human language. Great question. That is a great question. Okay, next one. You mentioned the word dominionism, and I would like to know if I wanted to research that, what recommended resources do you have on learning more about dominionism? Yes. Uh, okay, so dominionism or dominion theology in a nutshell. Have you ever heard of the seven mountain mandate? So this is a, an NAR distinctive, and again, word faith and NAR kind of blending together, but they believe that we have to take dominion over the earth. We have to take dominion over the seven mountains, seven mountain mandate, the, the mountain of education, the mountain of government, the mountain of economics, the mountain of um, entertainment. Did I say education? Anyway, some of those. Anyway, there's seven of them. And we've got to take control over these different institutions and Christianize them by force if necessary. And then and only then, not will Jesus come back, but can he come back? And according to their eschatology, Jesus is basically up in heaven just kind of sitting on his hands, just waiting for us, you know, wishing we would hurry up and, and take over these seven mountains so he can come back. Um, I would recommend, there's a book in, written by Holly Pivik, P-I-V-E-C, and she wrote it with another gentleman, and his name escapes me right now, but I think it's called, uh, I think it's just called the New Apostolic Reformation or something like that. But anyway, Google that. New Apostolic Reformation, Holly Pivik, P-I-V-E-C, and it'll come up with the other gentleman who wrote it. I can't remember. Um, so that's the most in-depth treatment I'm aware of. That, that Sure. Other questions? <clears throat> We've got just a few more minutes here. Coming around back. In the book Strange Fire, the uh, book entitled Strange Fire, is kind of, it's a great book dealing it. It's not just dealing with dominion, uh, de- but the charismatic movement as a whole. Strange Fire book is gr- really great. Hi, I was wondering if you could tell me some of the teachings that would put John Piper in the charismatic camp. Some of the teachings of, of John Piper in the charismatic camp. So they would... They believe that all of the signed gifts are operative in the church. So they would believe that the gift of tongues is operative in the church. In fact, there's a a video of John Piper. It's a number of years old now, maybe eight or nine years or so old. And John Piper is talking about the gift of tongues. And he says, he says, I've prayed for this gift. And um, he said, Lord, in his words, he said, Lord, give me this toy. He referred to it as a toy. Give me this toy. But he admits that he's never been given the gift of tongues. Uh, so anyway, that's they just... John Piper, Wayne Grudem, Sam Storms would believe that all those gifts are, are operational today. And I, I strongly disagree with them on that. Again, it's not a primary issue. I'm not saying I don't, um, I don't expect... To not see these men in heaven, I, I fully expect to see these men in heaven one day. 
So it's not a primary issue, but I will say this, when it comes to the charismatic question, as far as the second tier issues, it's at the top of the second tier issues and it's bumping the floor of the primary issues in my estimation. So it's, it's right up there, but it's not in and of itself salvific. I will say this, though, and this is one of the, fall, the, the drawbacks and the pitfalls. Even with your careful charismatics, like John Piper, like Sam Storms, like Wayne Grudem, uh, they, are, they have been very, very reluctant to call out anybody in the charismatic movement. Uh, even someone like Todd Bentley, these men, John Piper especially, and... Um, Wayne Grudem, John Piper, I'm not sure about Wayne Grudem, but anyway, uh, even with somebody as obviously deranged as Todd Bentley, if you don't know who Todd Bentley is, I mean, he is, honestly, I believe he's demon-possessed, without any hyperbole. This is a man who claims that God told him to kick an elderly woman in the face with his biker boot. I'm not kidding. Uh, Just obviously deranged. But John Piper was reluctant to call out Todd Bentley. He was like, well, let's, you know, let's take a wait and see attitude and see what happened. He didn't endorse him, but he didn't call him out either. And so it, unfortunately, even with the most careful charismatics, there is a real reluctance to call out anybody in their movement. Um, Sam Storms will not call Bill Johnson a false teacher. And we'll talk more about Bill Johnson, Lord willing, tomorrow morning in the Sunday school hour. I'm going to go into, into that. Um, he won't call Bill Johnson or Bethel Church a false teacher or a false church, respectively. And it's patently obvious that they are. Okay. One left. Sorry, Tim, you had your... <laughs> Last one. Just to clarify it in my own mind, Scripture says that these people that are teachers to us will be held to a higher accountability yes, ma'am. if if their names aren't being removed from the book of life or what would their judgment be if it's not severity of what they're defrauding us of yes yes uh, their judgment will be horrifying uh, and we haven't gotten into the blatant heresies of it yet. We'll do that, Lord willing, tomorrow morning. But uh, tomorrow morning, you will hear jaw-dropping heresies. I mean, th- things that you just cannot imagine that any Christian could ever say. And I would agree with that, actually, because I do not believe these people are Christians. John Piper, yes. Benny Hinn, Kenneth Copeland, no. Todd White, no. Todd Bentley, no. I do not believe they're Christians. And I have no hesitation in saying that. Um, they're, they're the deepest, darkest, hottest part of hell will not be populated with men like Adolf Hitler or Saddam Hussein or Mussolini or Pol Pot. Now, those guys are in hell, to be sure. But the deepest, darkest, hottest part of hell, I would submit to you, will be populated by people 
who have had the most exposure to the truth and yet rejected it. And they preached a false Jesus and a false gospel and have led millions of people straight to hell, all in the name of Jesus. I would, in James 3.1, let not many of you desire to be teachers, my brethren, knowing that we will incur a stricter judgment. He was writing that to actual believers. So when you talk about a false teacher, Benny Hinn and Kenneth Copeland, they've got the same Bible we've got. Joel Osteen, he, unless God grants him repentance, he will be in the deepest, darkest, hottest part of hell. It doesn't matter how much he smiles. It doesn't matter how folksy he is. He's preaching a false Jesus and a false gospel. And uh, one of the ironies of, of this whole movement is that the word faith folks and charismatics, they would look at people like us, and I would assume most of us in here are cessationists, and they would say, oh, you don't believe in the Holy Spirit. You don't believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. To the contrary, I am so confident as a cessationist in the power of the indwelling third person of the triune Godhead that I do not believe that someone can be indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God and teach the things they teach and feel no conviction. If they were truly indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, then the Holy Spirit of God would drop them to their knees under such heavy conviction. And the fact that, the, that He doesn't, that is evidence that there is no indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives. So, Benny Hinn, Kenneth Copeland, Osteen, all those guys, Womack, all of them, they're not Christians. They're not Christians. And so it will be very, very bad for them. As bad as it gets.